0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 7th, 2011.
0: Coming up, CU scientists will tell us why they know that ancient cavemen stayed local while women left home.
2: Using a few fossil teeth, we found the first direct evidence for the social structure of early hominids.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: We all know what it's like to drink or bathe in real water, but what about virtual water? Well, Virtual water is an economic calculation of the water needed to produce a certain amount of product. For instance, producing one kilogram of beef generally requires 15,000 liters of water. It also takes water to grow crops such as juicy oranges. Virtual water transfers occur through trade. When desert destinations such as Qatar or Las Vegas buy oranges and beef, they are indirectly indirectly importing water. As the world's population grows, virtual water transfer could, in theory, provide more equal water use between nations, ensuring that everyone's water needs are met. However, according to a study published today in the journal Environmental Research Letters, Banking on virtual water as a solution to global water problems could spell disaster. The study's lead author, David Seekel of the University of Virginia points out that 80% of the people on Earth are already threatened by water shortages. Sekel warns that there's not enough virtual water transfer to ensure that future larger populations have enough water. What's more, recent theoretical work shows that these transfers make societies more susceptible to droughts. Without addressing population growth, Siegel says that efforts to equalize water supplies through global trade or a formal government-based virtual water market are likely to end up high and dry.
1: For North American wildlife, it's often hard to survive the winter. Many bats solve this problem through hibernation, but at a cost. Hibernation allows some pathogens, such as rabies, to survive as well. To figure out the costs and benefits of hibernation, Colorado State University biologist Dylan George and colleagues designed a mathematical model to analyze data from a five-year study of Colorado's big brown bats. Matching data about birth, mortality, and rabies infection, they've concluded that during the chilly months of a bat's winter hibernation, the bat's slowed-down metabolism slows viral development enough that it doesn't make the bat sick just yet. And this allows plenty of bat babies to be born in the spring, already infected with rabies. Many of these young bats then live long enough to produce more generations of infected babies. In contrast, when the scientists ran simulations to eliminate hibernation, the rabies virus killed bats so fast populations crashed. The authors say this gives insights into how hibernation and cooler temperatures may influence many diseases in bats.
0: We're not completely certain how to explain this next story because, well, It's based on the uncertainty principle. The uncertainty principle is one of the more well-known consequences of quantum mechanics, but in case you are uncertain about what that principle is, it's usually defined as you can't measure both the position and the speed of a particle simultaneously, because as soon as you measure one, you irrevocably interfere with getting an accurate measure of the other. It's also related to the other well-known concept of quantum mechanics, the mysterious particle-wave duality. One classic demonstration of these phenomena is called Young's Double Slit Experiment, where particles pass through a pair of slits and interact with each other and create an interference pattern, even if you send them through one particle at a time. Now that raises the spooky question, what is a particle interfering with if it's traveling alone, unless it somehow passes through both slits simultaneously and interferes with itself? And if you tried to measure the position or momentum of the particles or which slit a particle went through the very act of measuring destroys the interference pattern well now sacha kosis and colleagues at the university of toronto have devised an experiment that may provide a peek at the path or the typical path taken by photons in the double slit experiment they make what are called weak measurements of a photon's momentum to create an average trajectory for the particle. These weak measurements don't disturb the particles enough to destroy the interference effect. They also don't allow for precise measurements of individual particles, but they do make good measurements of the average paths for many particles. The researchers suggest That the power of these weak measurements might bring a better perspective to the quantum behavior of particles than trying to pin down and see what happens to just one of them. Though precisely how this will help our understanding of quantum mechanics is uncertain.
1: You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU science and technology show. I'm Ted Burnham. Two million years ago, two-legged apes roamed the African landscape. Many of these ancient hominins lived in limestone caves in what is now South Africa. We know this through fossilized skull fragments and teeth from those caves. But fossils only tell us where an individual died, not where it grew up or where it traveled during its life. Or do they? New research from the University of Colorado that's just been published in the journal Nature reveals that male hominins in South Africa grew up in the caves where they died, while the females who died there grew up elsewhere and migrated to the caves as adults. The research not only sheds light on the behaviors of early human relatives, it makes use of a new technique pioneered by the CU researchers to quickly and cheaply analyze the birthplace of fossilized creatures. Here to tell us more about the study is lead author Sandy Copeland, adjunct professor of anthropology at CU. Professor Copeland, thank you for joining us.
2: You're welcome, it's my pleasure to be here.
1: So let's start off by, by just telling us a little bit about the species of hominin that you were looking at.
2: Right, we looked at two different species of early hominins, um, both of which lived around two million years ago. One is Australopithecus africanus. Um, it was. Um, it's a potential ancestor to modern humans and that it might be one of the ancestors of the homo lineage um, that came after Australopithecus. The other species that we looked at is Paranthropus robustus, which is one of a group of hominins called robust australopithecines and that group eventually went extinct. Um, they, were, they were specialized um, in having large teeth and huge chewing muscles so they um, must have been specializing on a particular type of, of food that, that needed to be ground up a whole lot.
1: And um, how how closely related are those species, is, is that Paranthropus robustus to modern humans? Where did we branch off?
2: Um, Paranthropus robustus is, is definitely, or almost definitely, not an ancestor of modern humans, Whereas Australopithecus africanus potentially is. And those two species were fairly closely related to one another. Um, For example, they were much more closely related than we are to our closest living relative chimpanzees.
1: So these are sort of like our distant cousins many times removed.
2: That's right, Um, yeah. And both of them were upright, walking on two legs um, with brain sizes slightly larger than those of apes but quite a bit smaller than those of modern humans.
1: Now what do we have as far as the the skull fragments and the the teeth? What other sort of fossil evidence do we have?
2: Um, So for these two species we have a number of fairly complete skulls that have been fossilized and we have lots of isolated fossil teeth. Um, Teeth preserve particularly well in the Process of fossilization because tooth enamel is the hardest structure in the human body, and we have a limited number of uh, postcranial remains from these species.
1: I've heard uh, teeth described as pre-fossilized.
2: That's right, because tooth enamel has such a, a a low content of organic material that it's it's practically a rock already when it's you know in our bodies. So, so that. Um, is a useful attribute for paleoanthropologists because it means that the the chemical structure of the enamel doesn't necessarily change that much um, through the period of fossil, fossilization, unlike bones, which are very porous and soft and absorb lots of uh, chemicals from the surrounding soils in which they get buried.
1: So the teeth are, are still in pretty much the same state they were when the organism died and left them there.
2: That's right. The tooth enamel is... Um, at least in, in this in these particular cave sites, we've done studies that that show that yes, the the chemical composition of the enamel is pretty similar to what it was, um, or almost indistinguishable from when they were living.
1: Uh, two million years ago, wow! And so that's ideal for for this study because you were looking at the chemical composition. What what exactly were you looking for? Yes,
2: yeah, so we wanted to apply the technique of strontium isotope analysis to these fossils. Um, The reason being that strontium isotopes can tell you where an individual grew up, uh, which part of the landscape it grew up on, which bedrock it was living on when its teeth were forming in its jaw.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that process. The the strontium comes from bedrock.
2: That's right. Uh, Strontium is an element that's very similar to calcium, and it occurs in rocks. You know, most all rocks throughout the world. but there, there are several isotopes of strontium, and strontium-87 is an isotope that uh, derives from the decay of rubidium-87. So the amount of strontium-87 varies in different types of bedrock, depending on how old they are. In other words, how much, how much time the rubidium has had to decay into the strontium-87, um, and also based on, well, the initial composition of the rock. Well, so the result of that is that different types of bedrock have different isotope ratios of strontium-87 compared to strontium-86, which is a stable isotope. Um, so and so this, that strontium isotope ratio is sort of a, a signature for each, each bedrock, and that gets reflected directly in the soils that are um, in, a, in a given area that are basically the product of the breakdown of that bedrock. And again, the strontium from those soils gets taken up directly into the plants and then ultimately into the animals that eat the plants in that area.
1: So this is an amazing uh, process that that takes millions of years for the lava to come up out of the earth and settle into bedrock and be turned into soil, and then millions more years for after these these creatures eat the plants that took up the strontium, and, and we're still able to tell exactly... Exactly where that 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 individual was eating plants, basically.
2: Well, um, pretty much. That that's the the idea. Um, the so the in order to to use strontium isotope analysis in an application like this, or or in an archaeological application, um, you have to have the region that you're looking at has to have different types of bedrock that outcrop in different areas, so that you can. Basically, you can compare the signal, the strontium isotope signature of the local area with that of, of areas that are a few kilometers, a few miles away. Um, and in, if you can establish that there are different strontium isotope signatures in the faraway places versus the local place where you found the fossils or the or the remains, um, then, yes, you can use the technique to determine whether individuals either it's animals or humans, um, looking at their teeth or bones, you can deter- determine whether they were from the local environment or not.
1: So how did you actually measure the, the strontium in these teeth? What process did you use?
2: We used a relatively new technique called uh, laser ablation. Um, the full name is Laser Ablation Multi-Collector Inductively Coupled Plasma Mass Spectrometry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mouthful, wow. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, so basically it's a laser connected to a mass spectrometer. And um, we were, the only reason we were able to do this study on these precious fossil hominin teeth is because of this new technique. Um, the laser, when, it, traditionally, you, one would sample strontium in teeth or bones by uh, using a dental drill or a, a small saw and cutting a p- chunk off of a tooth and then dissolving it and measuring the strontium. Um, but that's quite destructive. With the laser, you um, simply put the tooth or the material you want to analyze into uh, a chamber, and um, the laser zaps the surface of the tooth uh, leaving uh, basically uh, taking up some of the of the tooth material um, and sending it into the mass spectrometer. But the mark that's left on the tooth is is quite small. It's less than one millimeter long, about a quarter of a millimeter wide. So um, it's it's barely even visible to the human eye.
1: That that would be maybe like the width of a f- the, the thickness of a fingernail. Yeah, something
2: um, like something that. Something really um, really
1: tiny. That's right. And uh, you you had to do this multiple times on each tooth. I understand.
2: That's right. We um we we did multiple measurements between four and fifteen on the surface of each tooth. Um. So that we could get a statistically valid. Um, idea of the strontium isotope composition of that tooth, and also to see if there was any very variability in the strontium isotope um, ratios of a given tooth. We didn't find much variability within each tooth, um, but we did find differences between different individuals.
1: Okay, so some of the individuals had more strontium and some had
2: less? Well, no, not necessarily more or less, but some of the individuals had uh, very different strontium isotope compositions than others.
1: So the ratio was higher. That's right, or the, lower. sorry. The
2: ratio of strontium 87 to 87. That's uh, strontium 87 to strontium 86 is what we were measuring, and we were at first thinking that we w- might see differences between these two species, africanus and the robustus, um, but we were fairly surprised that we did not see differences between the two species so statistically speaking, there was no apparent difference in the landscape use between the two species So they were both uh,
1: uh, separated by gender or, or by by the sex of the individual um, is is the conclusion in the paper How do you know that?
2: <laughs> well, okay, so on the one hand we had we had samples of of the two different species, but we also had Specifically, chose teeth that were the largest of the large um, of the fossil isolated teeth that were available for study, and the smallest of the small. And that was so that we could attempt to get males and females and see if there were differences between those. Um, There, it's pretty well established now that these early hominin species were sexually dimorphic, which means that the males were quite a bit larger than the females. In body size, and and this is also reflected in the size of their teeth. Um, so we did some, we part of our study included um, measuring all of the molar, the third molars and canines um, that are in existence of these fossils, so that we could um, establish the range of of sizes of the teeth, and and therefore be able to know whether the what we thought were large teeth were actually large compared to the entire fossil sample for that species.
1: So, um, so you have these extremely large teeth that you're sure are are really representative of the big ones, and that's probably the guys. Right. And you have these extremely small teeth that are probably representative of the girls, um, and and you look at the strontium isotopes and and you find.
2: Yeah. So, what we found was that. Um, when we divided it into small versus large individuals the of the large individuals, the presumed males um about ninety percent of them were from the local area, from the local environment that the uh, where they where we where we know they eventually died um, however, among the small individuals, the presumed females, at least fifty percent of them were not from the local environment, so in other words, they had they had grown up. They had spent their childhood when their teeth were forming and incorporating strontium isotope ratios, somewhere other than the fossil caves where they eventually died.
1: Were you able to pinpoint exactly where each one came from, or, or just to say it's not local? Actually,
2: we, we were not able to pinpoint um, the necessarily the part of the landscape where they came from because uh, because they they're. they're in the surrounding type, in the surrounding bedrocks, there is some overlap in strontium isotope signatures. Um, so it's, you know, we can potentially narrow down the possibilities of where an individual came from. Um, but at least at this point, it's not, it's not possible to say exactly where they came from. What we can say for sure is whether or not they were from the local environment or not.
1: So, how far away were might they have come from
2: well, the females um the the minimum distance that they would have come from would have been uh, about four or five miles um, and it could have been twenty miles it could have been fifty miles we mm-hmm. don't know but but basically we can we know that the minimum was about four to five miles away
1: to to get into a, a bedrock area with different strontium that's isotopes. right that's right so this seems like the the first time uh, that we've been able to tell anything about the the lives of these individuals, rather than just looking at the species. And we find them in this certain area, but we don't really know too much too much else until now. We're, we're starting to look into that. Well, how, how exciting is that?
2: It's very exciting because um, <laughs> one of the things that's that's great about our study is that these are f- isolated fossil hominin teeth that were excavated in most cases decades ago. And now we've been able to go to the museum and use a new technology to measure the strontium isotopes in these teeth and learn something um, interesting and exciting about their actual social structure, because ultimately the, the meaning of our pattern is that, that female hominins were the ones that probably left their natal group when they reached maturity, whereas males probably stayed in their um, original home community. And that's an interesting pattern you know when it comes to trying to reconstruct the social structure of these early hominins
1: so where do we go from here what would you like to be the the next study to to tell us even more
2: well an interesting thing to do would be to um do these same sorts of strontium isotope studies on other say more recent species of early hominins for example the earliest members of the genus homo like homo habilis and homo erectus i mean if if we could you know, establish if and how, um, dispersal patterns changed through time and human evolution, we would, um, it would be very interesting, um, you know, to see how that changed.
1: Excellent. So Professor Copeland, you're, um... Your study was published uh, in the June 2nd issue of the journal Nature, I believe. That's correct. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Um, I've been speaking today with Sandy Copeland, adjunct professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado, about her recent study of migration patterns in ancient hominids. Thank you again for joining us.
2: Thanks. It was great to be here.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show producer and engineer was Shelley Schlender. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Amon Tobin. Visit our website
1: at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there
0: through itunes and through callisto.fm and for you musicians out there the contest for our theme song is still accepting entries through july 12th more information is on our website at howonearthradio.org contest
1: questions or comments call the kgnu comment line at 303-447-9911 for how on earth the kgnu science show i'm ted burnham
0: and i'm joel parker